if there are children that want to go to children's church, we have a children's church available. Treasure's coming right there. Um, also, just as far as an announcement goes, we have a school that's now meeting in our church. It is a cottage school. Um, it is a woman in our community that is very degreed. She has a bachelor's in uh, elementary education and a master's in, in uh, counseling. And uh, she teaches all subjects. She has eight students, K through five, that meet here every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And they meet in the office, in the room right next to my office. I invite you to just kind of peek your head in the, around the corner today and just check out the room she has. It's extremely nicely done. And, um, they have, it starts at 8.30 in the morning and goes till 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's a full day. They wear uniforms. They started and it is really awesome. I'm so glad to have them in here. And, uh, it's a really a, a godly thing. And it's the beginning of, I hope, something that's going to continue to grow because our community needs something like this. It's a good, solid Christian education. And um, so I'm glad you're here and that we've been able to uh, extend an invitation to them to be in our church. Thank you for, for being here. We have a few visitors. Thanks for coming and being with us today. We appreciate you. We appreciate our, our regular attenders, Jackie and Tom. Wonderful job. Tom, it was great to have you back. Right, Jackie? <laughs> yeah. Tom's been busy uh, this summer like we all have been busy. And uh, when he plays, it just fills it up a little bit more. It's just awesome. So we really appreciate Tom and Treasure when they're here. And, of course, Jackie and Larry for bearing their faithfulness. So today, um, we've been talking about the Millennial Kingdom, which is the thousand-year reign of Jesus that actually culminates God's 7,000-year plan of mankind. Now, we haven't really talked about it that much, but I believe that, and, and Scripture would tell us, I believe, that everything, you know, God deals in sevens. He created the earth in seven days, six days, the seventh day he rested, right? And there's a significance about the number seven. And um, and I think it can be made, the case can be made biblically, that God's plan for mankind on earth is 7,000 years. And we believe that the creation was a one-week event of seven days, six days, and um, and that that occurred about six thousand years ago. So we are getting close to the beginning time of that thousand-year millennium, which would then fulfill God's seven thousand-year plan for mankind. But I want to talk to you today about what happens at the end of the thousand-year reign. And why is it important for us to think about today? Why do we need to be concerned what happens a thousand plus years from now? And why? Do, and what's the significance? What's the impact that it has on us? So I'm going to tell you why it's so important here at the beginning of the message. And then I'm going to try to prove it to you through the next remaining minutes. So it's important because it shows the power of mankind's sin nature without the presence of Satan as the tempter. Think about this for a minute. Today, we have not just not only just our sin nature, which we're going to talk about, where it came from, and all the other things about sin, plus we have the evil of Satan that's present amongst us. But in that thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will be bound. He'll be bound in the abyss and locked in for a thousand years, unable to bring temptation or deception to mankind. And yet, we're going to see that there will not only be 
sin in that thousand-year reign, but there will be a great rebellion at the end that will come against a God at the end of that thousand-year millennial reign as well. So there's some things to talk about here. So given that the outcome of the many that will choose to reject Christ at the end of the millennial reign, if we if they're going to reject Christ in a perfect environment, if it's difficult for them to live for Christ in a perfect environment, how much more difficult is it for us today to be victorious while Satan is still present amongst us? And so this is the challenge that I'm going to present at the end of the message today, is how do we live victoriously in the day that Satan is present? So to begin, we need to go back to the beginning. Let's, let's read our text today um, to remind ourselves of some things that we've already discussed regarding the population that will be in the millennial reign. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 3, it says this, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked it and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Let's pray for a minute. Father, help us, Lord, as we study this today. I pray, Lord, that our minds would be attuned to what you would have us to hear and learn. God, I pray that you would just keep us from being distracted by the things that really don't matter. Help us, Lord, to understand the significance of this time. And I pray, God, you'll just bring us alive and keep us from the tempter in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. So this thousand-year period begins with Satan being thrown into the abyss. And this includes all of his demons as well. So there will be no evil, no outward tempter in that period of time. And what this means is that Satan's daily present and persistent evil is no longer present on earth. Glory to God. He's going to be bound. The tempter is bound. He's no longer around. He's no longer here to bother us at that time. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But today, that's not the case. Today, Satan is present, and his agenda is openly obvious. There is no hidden secrets He's out to devour us. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's not your friend. The devil is a murderer. He's a liar. He's a hater of truth. He's the father of all lies. Everything about him is deceptive. There is nothing positive, nothing good about Satan or his demonic horde. John chapter 8, verse 44, it says, For you are the children of your father. He's talking to the Pharisees. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to you. He's talking to the Pharisees. For you are the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. He's also the accuser of the brethren. He is the accuser of people that profess Christ. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who is the Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. So Satan is the accuser of people. 
And what this means is that he accuses you of your past sins before God and also accuses yourself of your past sins. And he makes you unworthy that gives you the feeling that you're not worthy to come in his presence. Now, let me ask you, have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt the feeling within you that I'm not good enough to be in church? I'm not good enough to raise my hands in church. I'm not good enough to sing songs in church. I'm not good enough to pray. Have you ever felt that? Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the accuser of the brethren. It comes from Satan himself and his demonic horde. But, there, and here's the thing, when he accuses us, there's always a little bit of truth in it. Because he's right. In, in our own self, we are not worthy to come before the Lord. If I come in my own being and my own goodness and my own self-justification, I am not worthy to come into his presence. So there's a little bit of truth there. But with Christ as our Savior, if you've accepted Jesus, if you've ever gone to the day of repenting of your sins, asking for forgiveness and being saved and forgiven, you are redeemed. And as a redeemed person, you are no longer the person that you were. So Satan is condemning us based on our past sins, but this is not who you are any longer. We're made righteous by the blood of Jesus and no longer condemned. And we need to remind ourselves of that fact. Exactly what Pastor Rip was saying. We need to encourage ourselves in the word. We need to know who we are. And don't let the enemy be victorious in telling you that you're not who you are. Because if you're in Christ, you're in Christ. And the devil's a liar. And he's telling you that something that's not true anymore. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us his life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. End of story. That's it. So the reason why I believe it's important for us to be reminded of this is because in the thousand-year millennial reign... Satan will not be there to tempt nor accuse the human population any longer. And we're going to see why this is important in a moment. But I want to take a minute and I want to remind us, remind us who is present in that period on earth. We've talked about this before, but I want to make sure we're clear on it. Remember, there will be two separate groups of people coming into, the, into that dispensational time. Right? There's going to be those in eternal heavenly bodies who will be ruling with Christ, and that's going to be you and I as the rapture church. We're going to be a ruling agent there in our eternal bodies, meaning that at that time, we will be above sin's temptation. Another group of people that will be with us will be the tribulation martyrs, those that got saved in the tribulation and were martyred for their faith, and for those Old Testament saints. These people also will be raptured and um, redeemed, or they will be raptured and given their eternal bodies when Jesus comes at the second time. The second time when he touches down in Mount of Olives, at that time the earth will open up and Old Testament saints will be resurrected as well as the martyrs of the tribulation. And then there will be those that were saved and survived through the seven-year tribulation. And these will be humans. These people will still be in their human flesh, just like you and I have today. And these will be comprised of both Gentiles and Jews. Jews that have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. 
Gentiles that accepted Christ and survived the tribulation, they will be the population. They will be the ones that enter into the into the millennial reign in their human bodies, mortal. And they will be the ones that will be given the responsibility to repopulate and rebuild. What's interesting here is that everyone that entered the seven-year tribulation, listen, everyone that entered the seven-year tribulation were unbelievers. Because all the believers were raptured. Jew or Gentile. Anybody that accepted Christ as their Savior and was living for Jesus at the moment of the rapture, the taking away prior to the tribulation, they'll be taken out of the world. So everybody left in the world will be unbelievers. And what's interesting is that everyone that leaves that seven-year tribulation that enters into the millennial reign will be only believers because all the evil people will have been destroyed. That's the battle of Armageddon. I find it interesting. Don't you find it interesting that those coming into the tribulation are unbelievers? Those coming into the millennial reign are believers. There's a big differentiation there. So to help us understand what happens during this time, we need to go back to our text again and continue to read as to how it's going to end. And then we're going to work backwards. Okay, so let's read Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10. And this is how it ends. Remember, at this point in time, Satan has been bound. He's no longer present. But at the end, we read in verse 7 that when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had, thrown, had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a great victory here, guys. A great victory in store that's coming. But what makes the end so significant is that at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released. Why? And so what? I mean, think about it. If everybody is a believer entering the millennial reign, what will be the impact Satan will have at the end if everybody's saved? Right? I mean, we would think that only Satan is going to be punished. Only Satan is going to have to deal with it because if everybody entered the millennial reign saved, aren't they going to stay saved? Well, let's talk about this. What's the text say? Go back to Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 10. The thousand years are over. Satan will be released. Verse 8. And he will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth. And to gather them for battle, in number, they are like the sand on the seashore. What's he talking about? The number of the army that he brings in to battle against God will be human people, and there will be so many you can't count them that are going to reject Christ at the end of the millennial reign. And what happens? They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves, that's Jerusalem, but fire came down from heaven and devours them. 
The thing I like about this is at the end, God doesn't even entertain them with a physical battle. (laughs) He doesn't even give them that much glory that he's going to come down. He's going to speak from heaven. From heaven, fire comes down and destroys them. And God says, it's done. It's over. I'm tired of it. (laughs) I've had enough. And he devours them from fire. All right, with fire. So let's think about this for a minute. How did so many people become deceived after a thousand years of living in godly paradise? What was it? What was a trigger? What happened here? And I believe this is where we need to sit up and pay attention. Because if people can be deceived in a perfect environment, I mean a godly environment, an environment that was created pre-fall conditions, and Satan is banned and bound and not able to be a tempter, if they can be deceived that way, how much more effective is evil in being a deceiver today, in the day that we live? You see, deception is the number one tool of the enemy. Let's just say it. Deception is the number one tool of the enemy. It was in the Garden of Eden, right, 6,000 years ago. Again, in a perfect environment. Adam and Eve needed nothing. They had everything provided for them, a perfect world. But somehow Satan was able to deceive them, thinking that God was holding out on them. How did that happen? And let me just tell you that his deception is still his number one tool today. Think about this. He's had 6,000 years to practice on humans. He said, 6,000, you're not the first rodeo, guys. (laughs) He's had lots of time to practice deception on people just like you and me. And he's gotten really good at it. They're very skilled in the art of deception. And I think it is an art form. Deception is an art form because it's very personal and it's very different for every person. You're deceived, you're tempted with things differently than I am. There's not a one-size-fits-all version of deception. Satan is very subtle in the way he deceives people because he's watching you, and he knows your weak points, and he knows when and how to tempt that is the most effective against you. You see, the way I can understand this is that Satan is, even though he's evil, he's very organized, and he's very smart. I mean, he was created as the one of God's best angels before he was cast out of heaven. So he's no dummy. He may, be, he may be evil, but he's not stupid. And the best way that I can understand how he organizes things is that Satan is not a creator. He is a duplicator. He duplicates whatever God does. And then he twists it around for his own evil agenda. So if you believe that you have a, that God has assigned you a guardian angel, which I believe is biblical. I believe that we have guardian angels that watch over us and they're assigned to watch over us and to protect us and to help us in our life. If you believe that, then I think it's all likelihood that Satan has replicated that and assigned a demonic evil angel to you, but not to protect you, not to give you a good life, but he's there to study you. He's there to watch you. He's there to figure out how, what motivates you. What, how easy, what are the things that you need to tempt you with? Because they're watching, they're paying attention. And you know, has anybody read 
the book from C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you haven't, I encourage you to go get the book. The Screwtape Letters. And basically, it's C.S. Lewis's version of what's going on in the spirit world between Satan and the demons. And he's got how Uncle Screwtape, or Uncle, well, I, I forget the, all the names, but basically there is a, a mentor angel watching over a younger demonic angel that has been given charge over humans, over Christians, and now they're trying to figure out how to deceive, and there's a lot of good communication going on between them, and it's just a good replication, I believe, of what really was happening in the evil world about how they're talking about you and me in the, in, in the evil world. So I would go read that. But So here's the question then. If we know their deception's coming, how do we defeat it? How do we combat deception and temptation of the enemy? Well, let me give you some pointers. Through First of all, through a daily reading of God's word. Through a prayer life that is seeking God's wisdom on a daily basis. Through being willing to be challenged by God's word and then make the changes that challenge of conviction would require to be open and honest about really what's going on in your life by surrendering to the will of God and being quick to obey what we read and what we study in God's word. And then I think something that's very important that maybe we don't do a lot of, and that is we don't find the accountability partners. Find a Christian friend that you trust that will be an accountability person for you. That will be open enough to say, are you okay? It looks like there's something maybe bothering you. Are you okay? I mean, accountability is, is really big. It's huge. If we're going to be able to defeat the deception and the temptation of the enemy. So let me ask the question, is it easy? No. It's not easy. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's possible. And not only possible, it's promised. Now listen, uh, this is not a pessimistic way of looking at life. It's a realistic way of looking at life. We have to look at life in a real, with a realistic lens. We can't live a life thinking that I'm a Christian, therefore all, I'm above all the problems. Because that's not realistic. Because as soon as the first problem comes you're going to be knocked off your horse and you're going to be wondered, well, why did the pastor or why did my friend lie to me? Because he told me life was going to be good. No, I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you it's going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worthwhile if you'll focus in on it and if you'll pursue the truth and do what we're talking about here. You see, we have to determine to follow Christ and his example and to obey his word as the best way to defeat deception. The best defense against deception is a good offense of righteous living. The best defense is a good offense. We've heard about that. Athlete, athletes, basketball coaches, football coaches, we've all heard that, right? The best way to win the, to win the game is to keep your offense on the field. Keep the defense off the field. If you can keep your, def, your offense on the football field, chances are you're going to win the game. But if we live defensively all the time, we have a problem. So the best offense, the best defense, I'm sorry, is a good offense. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us this. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, 
just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So that's what he's telling us to do. And in that, he goes on to say in verse 3, he says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. So do you see what where, where he's going here? Verse 4, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are, of, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Do you see Paul giving us a stern warning on how to have a good offense? And that is to be, stay, keep yourself away from things that would be, that would lure you in to the worldly thinking. It's an intentional effort on our part. Something you have to decide to do. It's not something you just fall into. It's something that you determine in your life that I'm going to make this my goal. I'm going to live this way. Now let's talk about those in the millennial reign that don't have Satan to deal with. All right? These people are living in a perfect environment. What will it be like for them, do you suppose? Well, recognize that even though every person that enters into the thousand-year millennial reign will have already received Christ, they're already saved, they're already on their way to heaven with Christ, they still have something within them to deal with. And this is something that may be not so obvious, but it's the truth. The sin nature in mankind is still present, even though Satan is not. You see, if, if Satan is banished into the abyss, then where is evil coming from? We're already been told at the end that there will be numbers beyond our ability to count that will reject Christ and go into battle against God at the end of the thousand years when Satan's released. So where is this evil coming from? Where is this sin coming from? If Satan has been banished, then where is the evil coming from? You see, it's interesting to note that nowhere in the Bible does it indicate that the solution to indwelling sin is to bind Satan. We often blame Satan. Flip, Lewis, Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. Remember that? We blame Satan for all of our problems. The devil made me do it. Well, the reality is that's not true. Yeah, maybe he's an influencer, but he can't make you do anything that you don't want to do. So don't blame him and don't think you're going to get away with it by blaming God, blaming Satan when you get you stand in front of God to say it's devil's this is the devil's fault and God's going to say it. no it's not the devil's fault it's your fault you have to take accountability for your sin nature James chapter one verse fourteen and the apostle James I I have to say this every time I think about James he's the half brother of Jesus <laughs> that's amazing to think that just guy grew up with Jesus and at the beginning of 
Jesus's ministry, James didn't believe in Jesus. Do you know that? James thought Jesus was a heretic because they were living in a Jewish world and the Jews didn't think, didn't believe the Messiah was Jesus at that time. But later on in his life, James finally accepted Jesus as the Savior. So I think that's pretty impressive. But James, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So we have a sinful nature within us. They, in the millennial reign, will have a sinful nature within them. So what is the sin nature? What is it? Let's talk about it. The sin nature is very simply is that aspect in man that makes him rebel against God. The sin nature is that aspect in man that makes them rebel against God. Now, when we speak of the sin nature, we refer to the fact that we have a natural inclination to sin. And given the choice to do God's will or our own, we will naturally choose to do the thing we want to do. It's just built into us. That's the way we live. We, we're selfish. We're inward focused. We want to do what we want to do. Proof of the sin nature abounds. Proof of the sin nature abounds. No one has, no one has to teach a child to lie or to be selfish. I mean, rather, we go to great lengths to teach children to tell the truth and to put others first. I mean, that's our job as parents, to discipline our children. Sinful behavior just comes naturally to them. They just know how to lie from the very beginning. <laughs> they know how to blame brother or sister. Oh, he did it. She did it. They know how to place blame. That's just the way, that's just the way we're wired. The great evangelist Charles Spurgeon said it this way, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic Ocean... So does sin affect every atom in our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you're deceived. We have to recognize, folks, that it is just our nature to be sinful. No matter how good we are, no matter how good you live, your nature is sinful. So where did this nature come from? Well, see, in Genesis... God didn't create mankind with a sinful nature. He did not create us that way. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own, what? In his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Is there sin in God? Does God have sin in his image? Absolutely not. We're created in the image of God. So if that's the case, where does sin come from? Where did it come? How did it get in us? Well, the sin nature entered all of mankind through the sin of Adam and Eve. I think we all know that. We've read the story. Every person from every generation is contaminated by this sin nature, and no one is exempt from it. No person. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. So when I say this, I'm not saying you're bad people. 
I'm just saying you're sinful people. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's what the Bible says, right? I can't, I can't say it any different. My job is to read what the Bible says. And if I say it any different, then I'm telling you untruths. And, and I don't do that to make you feel bad. I'm just telling us, I'm just saying it to be realistic so we know what we're dealing with. So do we lose our sin nature when we get saved? Boy, it would be great if we did, didn't it? But unfortunately, we don't. See, sin nature is something that we battle, we deal with, even after we accept Christ as our Savior. It's part of the battle of our life. It's the process of making him Lord of our lives. After we've submitted to him, after we've asked for forgiveness, and repented of our sins, those initial sins, we have to deal with the sin, sin nature on a daily basis and ask him to help us overcome that nature within us. You know what this is called in big churchy words? Sanctification. You just learned a big churchy word, sanctification. Now, we're, we're sanctified instantaneously when we're saved. Just like the thief on the cross was when he accepted Christ on the cross, he was sanctified instantly. If he would have had to get off, if he was able to get off the cross and live for the rest of his life out, then he would have had to work through a process of daily sanctification. And that's where you and I are today. I mean, it would be kind of good, it would be kind of easy if we got saved and died. <laughs> then we wouldn't have to deal with sin nature. But the reality is, as long as we're living, we're dealing with the sin nature. And we have to continually put it at the cross. We have to continue to nail it at the cross. We have to go through a continual daily sanctification process. And even Paul wrestled with that. I'm not going to take the time to read this right now, but write this down. Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. Read those 10 verses and see how Paul wrestled with the sin nature in his life. The Apostle Paul. You know, the one that wrote most of the Bible, most of the, of the books in the New Testament, he wrestled with a sin life. If he's going to wrestle with a sin life, then I think I am as well. But thankfully, God helps with this, helps us deal with this because on our own, we couldn't overcome it. You see, as the Holy Spirit takes residence within us, he helps us overcome sin. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. The person who has been born into God's family does not make a practice of sinning because now God's life is in him, so he can't keep on sinning, for this new life has been born unto him and controls him. He has been born again. You see, it's not that the human nature was destroyed. It's that the person that has a true relationship with Jesus, and this is the key, that has a true relationship, relationship with Jesus. Not just knows who he is, but has a relationship with him based upon accepting Jesus' blood for their sin and asking them to be forgiven, repenting, going a different direction. That defines a true relationship. A person that has that with Christ learns through the power of the Holy Spirit to take responsibility for his sinful desires, and he doesn't make a practice of continued sin. Does that make sense? This is how we fight against the work of deception in that we understand that sin is going to come our way and now we have to figure out what are we going to do with it. You know, a good example of that is I used to have a swimming pool and I used to work around my swimming pool whatever, and every once in a while I'd slip and fall in. I didn't mean to fall in, but I did. 
And when I fell in, the first thing I tried to do was get out as quick as I could because I didn't want to be in a swimming pool. But then there were times where I would go intentionally to swim and I would go to the diving board and I would dive in or do a cannonball to see if I show my kids I could splash all the water out of the pool because I was so fat. At least they thought I was. You see, the difference here is that when I fell into the pool, it was an accident. And I didn't mean to be there. Let's consider that swimming pool sin. Sometimes I slip and fall into sin. I say something I shouldn't have said. I think something I shouldn't have thought. I do something I shouldn't have done. I didn't mean to do it. But I slipped. I fell in. So what do I do? I get out. As quick as I can, I get out. I dry myself off. I say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I repent again of my sin nature. What's different about that, or if I was to walk into the diving pool of that sin nature and dive headlong into it intentionally, there's a big difference, isn't there? Because I wanted to be in there. I dove in and I'm swimming around in my sin nature and I'm enjoying it. I got used to the water (laughs) and I'm enjoying my sin nature and I'm living in my sin nature. Big difference there. Satan, the deceiver, knows how to work in the life of people because when he can get them to self-justify their intentional and repeated sinful behaviors, that's his hook of deception. The problem with deception, let me say it real simple, the problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived. If you knew you were deceived and continued to do the things that you were doing and you knew it and you continued to do it, you're not deceived, you're stupid. <laughs> I mean, why would, you, why would you want to do things that you know are wrong? The problem with deception is you don't know you're deceived. So how do we do this? The believer needs to take control and see the truth for what it is. And we do this the way Paul described in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We demolished arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So men, if you have a temptation of towards a woman, you take captive it. You don't dwell in it. If there's a pornography site that you happen to come across while you're searching the web, because we know how that happens, you don't look at it. You take captive the thought and you deal with it and you put it out of your mind. If there comes a thought of greed or a thought of lying, no, you don't lie. You don't be greedy. You take captive it and you get it out of your life. You have to take responsibility. This is the hard part of righteousness, but it's my responsibility to do it for me and it's your responsibility to do it for you because I can't do it for you and you can't do it for me. Amen? So, when do we get rid of the sinful nature? I mean, I'm tired of dealing with it. When do we get rid of it? I'm making a big point here of the sin nature because that never leaves the mortal person while they're alive. As long as I'm alive, the sin nature is going to be a part of my life, including the people in the millennial reign. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us when the sin nature leaves. First Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 50. 
Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. See, this change that he's talking about right now is changing from a, from a mortal to an immortal nature. Mortal has sin indwelling. Immortal does not if you're in Christ. Let me, let's continue. Verse 52. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Verse 56. For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the moment of our resurrection, the moment of our rapture, the moment when we die in our flesh and we take on that heavenly spirit, we lose the sin nature. But not until then. But we're going to lose it eventually. Amen? That's good. I love that. But for those that enter the millennial kingdom as humans... The battle continues for them because even though Satan's bound, they still have to deal with the sin nature. So will there be sin in the millennial period? Will there be sin at that time? Well, because the sin nature still indwells people, they must learn how to overcome the pull of sin in their life, even though Satan is not there to deceive them. They still have the sin nature. They're still going to have to deal with this. Now, think about this. Their job, their task, as they enter into millennial reign, those that, that remnant that enter in, that are already saved, they're, big, they're given the task of rebuilding and repopulating the earth. So there will be marriages, there will be families, there will be many generations of children that will be born at that time. But only the first generation that entered there will have accepted Christ. So every person, every body, every baby, every child born into that millennial period will have to come to their own decision about Jesus. And think about this. After many generations, the tribulation, the thing that brought him into the tribulation, will be a matter of history. After 50 years, there'll be people there that didn't know what the tribulation was about. That's like us looking back at the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We weren't there. We didn't see it. We didn't witness it. And that's why I think we're having such a hard time as a country dealing with it because generation after generation has lost the impact of what these founding fathers were really trying to do. Same thing in the millennial reign. After years and years and years and generations of going through, there will be many that won't have any idea what the tribulation even was or even who Satan even is, because he's only going to be stories. This is only going to be stories to them. So there's going to have to be a lot of teaching by parents and by people that have have dealt with this, even if they're living in a perfect world, even when there's no wars or conflicts and, and work will be pleasurable and life will be good, Christ will still have to be taught. They still have to worship. In fact, there's going to be a lot of worship. There's going to be a, 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 re, a, a the temple is going to be rebuilt, and there's going to be a, a temple worship going on at that time, and it's going to be a remembrance of who Jesus was. And they have to have this so that those generations living in the millennial reign have an understanding who, of who Christ is and what He did for them. But because of the sin nature, people will rebel in the midst of it. 
That's the power of the sin nature that I talked about at the very beginning. Now we're getting to the reason why Satan must be released at the end. What's the purpose? What's the purpose of Satan's being releasing at the end time? It's to force people to make a choice to receive Jesus or reject him. Very simply put, it's the choice that's going to be made. Satan's purpose will be to gather as many people as he can that have been harboring resentment towards Christ, that haven't understood what it means to live for Jesus, even in a perfect world. What happens to the people who rebel? Well, Revelation chapter 20, verse 9, And I saw them as they went up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded God's people and the beloved city. But fire came from heaven on the attacking armies and consumed them. It's not going to be a pretty sight for those that rejected Christ at the end. They will be destroyed and they will be the last to enter the temporary hell that is holding all the others that have rejected Christ throughout all time that will appear before Jesus at the great white throne judgment, of which we'll talk about later what that really is. So what happens to Satan? Revelation 20.10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning fire, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown a thousand years before. Remember, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus returns from heaven, touches down, he captures the beast and the false prophet, and he throws them alive into the into the um Lake of Fire at that point. Now Satan is joining them. And they will be tormented there day and night forever and ever. Jackie, on that good note, would you come up, please? So why is it so important that we study this in as much detail as we have? Well, I believe if the numbers are going to be so great that it's going to be as of the sand on the seashore at the end of a thousand years of Satan being banished, how much more do we have to be on guard to protect ourselves today, even if we have a relationship with Jesus? Protect ourselves from the temptation of the evil one. Guys, this is serious. Don't let the enemy, don't let the devil deceive you thinking this is not serious. This is serious. This is the most important part of our life right now as we understand who we are in Christ And we understand we have an adversary and who he is. How many people are walking through life today blinded by the deception of the enemy? How many people are walking through life thinking they're fine, but blinded by the deception of the enemy today? Maybe you know some. Maybe you are one. (laughs) But it's tough. It's the tough truth. And here's the saddest part. They don't understand they're deceived. Most people have a misconception of that, of the righteousness requirements of God. Maybe they don't understand that God gives commands. Maybe they don't appreciate the fact the Bible says some things about sin. Maybe they don't appreciate the fact that they have a responsibility in their life over and above just saying the prayer. Maybe they've heard the version of a gospel message that says it's simply based on belief in Jesus without the necessity of sorrowful repentance and the taking up of one's own cross to follow Jesus. 
And I'm not saying that we're trying to make the gospel more difficult. I'm not saying that. I'm not adding to the gospel. It truly, the gospel is a simple belief in Christ and acceptance of who he is. He's the one that saves us. We don't get saved by our own works. But after we get saved, we have to make sure that we live according to the righteousness of God. Otherwise, we just have a false sense of salvation and security. Because I prayed the prayer 25 years ago, I can live the way I want to live today. Where is that in the Bible? Where is that at all? Where is it to say I'm saved one time only? No, here's the deal. We get saved every day. We renew our salvation every day. We we continue to repent every day. We live in Christ every day. And that's freedom. That's not bondage. That's not a hard word. That is a freedom word. Because the more I repent, the more I stand in Christ's presence with him. That's what I'm trying to emphasize today. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, 24, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Jesus isn't the only thing crucified on the cross. My passions, my evil desires are crucified on the same cross that Jesus was crucified on. Apostle also writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 14. He says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its its desires or dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death, hear that? These are strong words. You put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Amen. Amen. Those who live by placing their desires on the cross and crucifying them there, they are the ones that will live forever and ever. Those that self-justify themselves thinking, I, God isn't really, not really serious. He's not really serious about sin. He's not really serious about all this stuff the Bible says. No, let me tell you. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. There's nothing, there's nothing here he's making up. And we have to deal with it. And we can deal with it on a daily basis by going to Christ every day and saying, Father, forgive me. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you for this day today. Lord, we've talked about a lot of things over the past couple weeks about what it means to be in the end times, what it is to, what you have in store for us. And Lord, I pray that these messages have and will continue to settle into our hearts and that we'll chew on them and we'll meditate on them and we'll learn from them all that you have in store for us. I pray it's not waste time to be in church on Sunday mornings to hear these messages. I pray, God, that you will you will multiply them to us. God, I pray that my heart's desire is to desire you only and for those sinful passions that we still have, that we still deal with. God, I pray that we would be repentant over them, meaning that we would go the other direction, recognize them for what they are, nail them to the cross, and then walk in freedom, walk in joy and peace and assurance with you. That's our prayer. And I pray this in Jesus' name. If you need help with that at any time, I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to spend time with you. Pastor Rip would love to spend time with you. 
They have lots of other good Christian friends that would love to spend time with you, helping you with this. We all need help in this, guys. We can't be alone. Make it known to us. Let us help. Let's stand. And let's sing the song that Tom and Jackie are playing for us. Can you imagine that day? <laughs> Can you imagine that day when you stand before Christ and you come to all those that were there before you got there and now you're going to tell your story? What a great story that's going to be, amen? What a great time. I want to end this morning with the doxology that Paul gives in the book of Romans. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may have overflowing joy with hope by the power of the Lord by the Holy Spirit. Amen? So go with hope today because you are filled with joy. You're filled with hope as we trust in our Father. Amen?
Amen. Father, we just thank you for this day. Go with us, I pray, and just fill us with your joy today as we go into our world ahead of us. Help us to be that beacon of light. Help us to share with those around us who Jesus is. And let us celebrate the goodness of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be blessed.